Hey, have you heard about our all-new free PDF that you can download? It's called Five Ways Unresolved Trauma May Be Derailing Your Relationship. And if you're a couple that has done the date nights and attended the relationship retreats and learned the communication skills, read the latest books on marriage, but you still find yourself stuck in a loop of pain and frustration, then this PDF is for you. If one moment everything is fine and the next moment everything feels crazy and that is familiar, I encourage you to go to restoringthesoul.com, scroll down, fill in your email, and get the free copy of our all-new PDF, Five Ways Unresolved Trauma May Be Derailing Your Relationship. You're going to find it very helpful. Most people feel like they read this and they wonder if we've been reading their mail. They say, this is us. It's going to be of help. Check it out now at restoringthesoul.com. Questions haunt every life, writes Andy Crouch. The first, what are we meant to be? The second, why are we so far from what we're meant to be? Welcome to Restoring the Soul. I'm Michael John Cusick, and this is the podcast that helps you close the gap between what you're meant to be and what keeps you from being all that. Welcome to another episode of Restoring the Soul, and I am so thrilled that you have joined us for this program. It's part one of a two-part conversation with Ellen Heratunian, who is going to be talking with me about the practice of centering prayer, or as some people call it, contemplative prayer. And this contemplative prayer, uh, the spiritual practice, is one of the practices which has affected my life uh, and my faith the most profoundly. It's a practice, essentially, of simply being still before God and in the presence of God, and when it comes to a conversation uh, about Centering Prayer, where I just wanted to riff on different topics, I couldn't think of anybody more qualified or that I'd rather talk to about this subject than Ellen Heratunian, who is a former registered nurse who holds a master's in counseling, and she's a practicing psychotherapist in the front range of Denver. Ellen holds a certification in spiritual direction from the Bennett Hill Spiritual Formation Program in Colorado Springs. She's also a graduate of the Living School of Action and Contemplation in Albuquerque, New Mexico, which is a wisdom school that offers teaching in the way of the Christian mystics, contemplative practices, and Franciscan theology. So I'm excited for you to hear this conversation, and here we go with part one. Ellen Heratunian, welcome to the podcast. Thank you very much. Thanks for coming back again. This time we're going to have all the technology work. Okay. I'm eager to talk about your spiritual journey that has led you from when we first knew each other at Colorado Christian, where Mm -hmm. you were doing a graduate degree in biblical counseling, to now this contemplative journey you're on. Um, So talk to me about your story from even before when we first met in 1994. Okay. I became a Christian when I was in high school, fell in love with the scriptures and with theology, got married, and we headed to uh, seminary. And in seminary, I began to just have some serious questions. It felt like, and I did not really have words for it at the time, but it felt like everything was very much um, a cognitive faith, almost an ideology, rather than something that went to the heart. 
And I wasn't really sure what to do with that. But I had an experience. It was the 1980s and the AIDS virus was first coming um, into knowledge. We were first discovering that and it was all over the news and it was terrifying because we had no idea how to treat it. And people were getting very ill and dying very quickly. Um, And being an RN, I was in the middle of that conversation quite a bit. What was difficult is that we were seeing that it primarily was affecting the gay community. And I was watching the very large Christian community of the city, uh, for the most part, um, turning their back on en masse on the dying, the sick and the dying. And that was um, profoundly disruptive for my faith. Because I had believed that Jesus was the one who would kiss the lepers and touch the lepers and and heal the sick and reach out to um, the struggling and the sick. Um, So that began to really shake what I thought we knew. And I thought there had to be a way um, to be transformed, to become more like that Jesus, the Jesus that we read about in the scriptures. So that started me on a path. And it's taken a long while, but that was really the impetus. That was really the longing, I think, that was stirred at that time to kind of get to know this Jesus that was so very different. How did that specifically disrupt you during that time? I think it just broke my heart. I mean, there was a level of cruelty of how people were being treated, being told that this was God's punishment and they were going to hell. It was puzzling to me because these are um, good folks, loving folks. It just didn't seem to fit at all with the Jesus that I'd come to know in the scriptures. So for me, it was confusing. I realized I didn't really want to be a part of that, yet I had no idea where else to go. It was Jesus that I wanted. So my journey pretty much was, how do we become like that Jesus? Because I think we're not doing it right, Um, at least not right now. So anyway, from that point... I became fascinated with what is Christian transformation, Um, because very often it was taught to me as almost um, merely an indoctrination. Here's the right doctrines to believe, and this is the right um, way to behave. And those are important things. Those aren't bad things. But I didn't feel that they were really creating something different in me. Um, I did begin to find that from the contemplatives, from our uh, our own history, all of our history, the Christian contemplatives, in which they would talk about polishing the lens. At the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus talks about needing new eyes. He said, if the eyes are set right, then the whole body is well. And so what does it mean to have new eyes, to literally see differently? Did you see the movie Arrival that was out, I think, about a year ago or so? I, uh, I'm a Christian. I don't go to movies. <laughs> Okay, well... I've not actually seen that one. I confess. I saw it. (laughs) And it's amazing. It's an amazing movie. It is about some extraterrestrials who come to Earth. And in order for us to talk to them, we... They literally had to learn to see differently. Gravity wow. was different. Time was different. How they spoke uh, instead of a sentence that takes a couple of seconds, that's a passage of time. It was all at once. It was fascinating to see there had to be a new set of eyes in order to communicate. So that's what I feel like Jesus is bringing, is he's bringing to us a new way of seeing. Kingdom requires a new set of eyes. So I have a question about that. This new set of eyes is... We'll talk about what that means as you look outward, mm-hmm. but back to the tradition from where you came and that theology, a lot of that assumes that if you just get more knowledge, mm-hmm. more information, and if you just grow cognitively, that that will 
transform you. And mm-hmm. uh, your experience and my experience, I think, proves that that's not the case. I think it does only to an extent. I mean, I think there's value in understanding good doctrine. There's value in some of that for sure. But we need to um, grow just like a child needs to grow out of um, having a very strong set of rules to a place where you begin to trust that child to know when it is okay to push boundaries and that sort of thing, to develop maturity, to have to kind of internalize um, rules instead of always having them put around them like a fence. We haven't necessarily allowed people to develop and to grow. We've kind of kept them fenced in by doctrines and dogma and not allowed us to develop and to internalize this relationship with Jesus, to internalize a new set of eyes, a new way of being in the world. So what does that seeing and that new set of eyes begin to look like? And, of course, it's a process. Mm-hmm. I think uh, my mentor, uh, Richard War, often talks about um, a dualistic way of seeing, and that is the very natural way that our brain sees the world, that is through um, comparison and even competition, either or, in or out, black or white, that sort of thing. Um, and that's not always bad, and we need that kind of brain to... Um, do math. To be an engineer, you need somebody who knows it's this long and not that long when you're building a a wall or something. Um, But when we take that type of brain and we apply it to things like um, life and death and love and suffering um, and even to understanding God, we're not going to be able to understand well. We need new eyes to comprehend um, spiritual things. Um, He would call that the non-dual way of seeing. And that's the way of seeing that the contemplatives teach. Would that be equivalent to seeing with the heart? I think you could call it that. Um, But it's more than um, emotion. It does, I believe, call out of us a level of mercy. Uh, For example, one of my very favorite contemplatives is St. Bonaventure, who was a Franciscan. And he uses the illustration of the cross itself, which I believe is the path of a Christian anyhow, where the two poles of the cross are in opposition to one another, representing all of the extremes, all of the oppositions of the world, such as left and right and um, east and west and Republican and Democrat and all of the divides that we've created, that they um, stand in opposition to each other. And Jesus is the mercy that hangs between them. He does not eliminate one side or the other in order to resolve the tension. Jesus is mercy, and he teaches us the way to mercy, and he dies. And this path of dying to self, dying to ego, dying to our own sense of we know, and so therefore we know who to eliminate or who to punish in order to resolve the problem, he teaches us a new way. And I think it's it takes some real deep work in order to begin to see that way, because we are so naturally hooked in to knowing who to blame, to getting angry and want to lash out, Um, especially when it's a kind of an abstract group, that group over there. Other. Um, Yeah, all all Muslims are bad, that type of thing. It's like the non-dual eyes give us the eyes of mercy, which then would be the eyes of the heart to be able to have more space for those and to recognize that the other is me. Whatever evil I see in someone else, I'm capable of that same evil. It reminds me of the worship song that is sung in so many probably Protestant congregations around the U.S. of open the eyes of my heart, Lord, open Mm. the eyes of my heart, I want to see you. And if I'm not mistaken, that's from Ephesians chapter 1, right around verse 18, where Paul is praying 
for his mm-hmm. flock in Ephesus. And he says, open, my, my prayer for you is that uh, the eyes of your heart would be enlightened or mm-hmm. opened in order that you would know the hope to which you're called. So that's kind of what you're talking about. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And, and what yeah. is the hope to which we're called? Because it sounds like mm-hmm. in the context of this conversation, the hope is to have that same mercy and love as Jesus mm-hmm. and to be able mm-hmm. to look at a situation and to see through it. Mm-hmm. Like with the eyes of Christ, as opposed to good, bad, right, wrong, us, them, mm-hmm. paper, plastic. Paper, plastic. I added that one on. <laughs> yeah, I was pretty sure that wasn't in the original Greek. <laughs> um, yeah. <laughs> no, I agree. I, I think it is truly seeing through the eyes of the crucified, being people who have also been crucified with Christ. And we throw around these phrases from Scripture a lot. But I think this path, this non-dual path, brings us to the place of understanding that Scripture on a new level. Um, The passage in Ephesians that you talked about, for sure, it's not merely just of um, recognizing. It really is a sense of, wow, Jesus views um, this gay community who's dying of AIDS very differently than I do. Or Jesus views ISIS very differently than I do. Um, it takes a deeper work, I think, so to get there. Let me ask you uh, a question that a lot of people might be wondering: um, How does Jesus view ISIS? <laughs> well, I don't think there's anyone who is not a beloved child of God, made in the image of God, beloved to Him. Um, there's not anyone who falls outside of that. Now, does God love what we do to each other? And I say we because all of us are capable of doing um, extreme harm to one another. Of course, that's not okay. But each individual, what we, what I hear from people is we tend to dehumanize each other. They're just animals. They're maniacs. They're, when we use words like that, we are demeaning who they are um, as far as image of God goes. And that's where we err. If we can't recall that they're each somebody's baby, somebody's beloved child, somebody's husband, somebody's son, who are deceived and who are wounded and who are angry, then we forget. We also forget who we are because we're leaving that place of having, um, of seeing through this enlightened heart and viewing through the lens of our human uh, comparisons. If I make the other the enemy or if I make them bad, then that somehow justifies Mm -hmm. my hardness of heart or my Mm -hmm. lack of mercy or or even outright hatred. Absolutely. And it doesn't mean we don't um, protect ourselves and others from harm. But that, what you just said right there, is crucial because when we allow ourselves to become wrapped up in othering, and therefore become violent or exclusionary towards them, then we are living just like the world. We talk a lot about how Christians are supposed to be um, in but not of the world. Well, that is what the world does. And very much or very often we're quite a bit like that. So I think this deeper transformation is crucial um, so that we can be a part of the inbreaking of kingdom into this world. Uh, that, I think, is the hope, is the, the kingdom of God um, in us and amongst us. And that that is just such a fresh idea because so often, at least how I was brought up as a Christian, is that the kingdom of God comes when more people believe the right things Mm -hmm. and therefore Mm -hmm. enter the kingdom by accepting Mm -hmm. Jesus as opposed to that's certainly a beginning, Mm -hmm. but that the kingdom comes through the fruit of our lives and through us 
being Christ in the world. Mm-hmm. I think what we're seeing um, a shift going on, especially in the more thoroughly postmodern folks and um, specifically the millennial generation, is a movement from the faith just as orthodoxy. Here's the right things to believe. Again, not that that's bad, but it's not enough, to an orthopraxy, to what is our practice? How do we live out this uh, life of mercy and justice in Christ? And um, an example of that is I just read a book in which the theologian writing it talks about uh, his dream of having what he calls Evangel Way. This is a um, street in which all the different houses represent all the different denominations of the Christian church. And it's this lovely street in which we're all um, living together and um, uh, moving people are some of the denominations that are uh, a little bit more set apart from the bigger ones, you know, kind of calling them in. It's going to be this lovely Christian park. And rather what I think the um, new heart, these new eyes are drawing us toward is, well, if the incarnation is a doctrine that is true, and we believe it is, what does it mean to move off of Evangel Way and move out and live amongst the others, live in the poorer neighborhoods, live in the less safe neighborhoods, live in more diverse neighborhoods, be literally be a love incarnate into those places. So they're wanting to see, I think, a shift to say, well, what does this actually look like in our lives? That's so much harder and costs so much more than just believing the right things. Absolutely, it does. It does, yeah. But then, therefore, we're, I believe, when we do those sort of things, um, Christ is going to become more visible amongst us. We're going to literally be his hands and feet. So you started that journey with the disruption at seminary, and then we met when you pursued um, a counseling degree. Mm -hmm. And tell me about how kind of things move forward. And then I want to talk about centering prayer. Yeah, I was in the Master's of Biblical Counseling um, program and have become a psychotherapist and enjoy doing that. What I'm viewing that is now as helping people heal their internal dualisms, their internal splits, the place in which they have learned to condemn and despise their own selves. Um, do that kind of work so that we can be integrated internally and therefore um, be able to be a part of creating wholeness and integration out there. It was also life-changing for me. Um, We both shared the wonderful professor, Don Hudson, who is our professor of hermeneutics. He really began to really stir that idea of new eyes for me. He really was Um, emphasize quite a bit about how you read, how you see is everything. Because at that point, I think, and I think a lot of us are there, we don't realize that we come to the Bible text or to anything already with a lens in place. Bonaventure himself says we need to be continually polishing the lens. We have to be aware we have one and be willing to um, allow that to be put to death, allow that to be changed and polished so that we can see anew that the lens that we bring needs transformation as well. So that, in that sense, was um, powerfully life-changing for me. And you will remember, um, as my friend there, that year that we lost a child Hmm. that year. And that was heartbreaking. And that was also a life-changing event in that, um, which I believe suffering often is and can definitely be used in that way. That was a, a way that also um, changed the lens through which I saw things, where um, it wasn't so much that I expected God to just make everything go well, but recognizing where the places to which that took me 
uh, the brokenness to which that took me. And to find God in that new place, I began to just, I think, began to understand what it means to be seen, to see through the eyes of the crucified, to see through the eyes of the lowly and the suffering, um, that Jesus really views this world very differently than we do. What is up for us is down for him. Um, he, he identifies with the lowly, and that's where I found him. That's where um, I found um, intimacy, connection with God, is in that place of heartbreak. Ellen, I do remember that season of loss for you with your son. Uh, so let me ask you a question from that for you, but then kind of generalizing. Mm-hmm. Do you think that to go to this place of being able to see, to polish the lens, to get to a place where we're not thinking in terms of good, bad, right, wrong, this mm-hmm. non-dualistic way, mm-hmm. does that require suffering and brokenness such as you had in that season? Mm-hmm. Well, my mentor, Richard, would say what brings us to the place of transformation is either great suffering or great love. So it's not always suffering, but I think suffering tends to be primarily the way, because I don't believe there's any way to avoid suffering in this world. I think it's a part of everyone's life, and there can be a beautiful, redemptive work through it. But I even hesitate in saying that because we sometimes will trivialize um, people's suffering by offering them already these kind of Christian um, platitudes, that God will use this for good, and he will. But we need to um, allow uh, the time for, a respectful time for grief. So come back to that comment Mm -hmm. that it's either through great suffering or great love. Mm -hmm. Talk about those kind of in contrast and how those are transformational. Um. I think that you know true love, great love is just stunning, overwhelming, you know, and it it can absolutely um change a life. Uh for sure sacrificial love of some sort. Um when that happens, it's very hard to deny there's something larger going on and I think it just it will change your heart. It will open your eyes. It will bring some enlightenment. Um and suffering as well because suffering then um forces us to see that lots of times the way that we have approached life, the things that we think work for life uh, are no longer working. And perhaps even our whole worldview no longer makes sense. And we are forced to begin to consider that there may be something larger that we need to pay attention to. I think those are two avenues to that same end where we realize that, huh, there's more. There's more going on than I need to open myself up to and be aware of. That's helpful. It makes me... Mm -hmm think of that on the suffering side um, that suffering causes us to say I can't make my life work and love brings us to a place of saying I don't need to make my life work. Mm-hmm. I can mm-hmm. trust love. I can I can rest because uh, I'm okay. I'm taking care of my needs are met. That's a nice way to say that. Yeah. Absolutely. You've been listening to Restoring the Soul with Michael John Cusick. Produced by Brian Beatty and supported by generous listeners like you. To learn more about our life-changing intensive counseling process for couples and individuals, visit RestoringTheSoul.com.